Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Hello again from Montreal, Canada. 2023. Wow. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and hope this new year will bring lots of surgery. (laughs) (laughs) So we thank you for tuning in to Behind the Knife. And our episode today is on rectal gist. Maya, what is a rectal gist? Gist is gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Perfect. Okay, so we're going to start with the case. So, Professor Dagbert, go ahead. So, um, the case was a 69-year-old male who presented to the clinic with uh, some uh, perianal discomfort, especially when seated. Uh, his symptoms were fairly vague. He did not have bowel obstruction, and uh, he uh, maintained some continence. But on the physical exam, Uh, You can feel on the rectal exam that there was a large pelvic mass that was bulging on the lateral wall of the rectum. The mucosal lining was still smooth, but you can feel that there was something outside of the rectum. So in other words, you had kind of a bulky extra luminal mass. Yep, exactly. Was it mobile or was it? It was not mobile. It was fairly fixed and it was it was large. You couldn't get all the way to the top of it. Okay. So he, after that, he um, had some investigation with a CT scan, obviously, of the abdomen and the pelvis, which, which uh, demonstrated a 12-centimeter rectal mass originating from the lateral uh, rectal wall. And on pelvic MRI, he had a large mass with uh, basically an extrinsic compression of the pelvic structure, but there was no sign of invasions. Okay, so in this case, you didn't go on directly to colonoscopy. Well, he also had the colonoscopy, but basically all the workup was done like in parallel. Okay. Because of the physical exam, he was sent for all those tests. Okay. Um, and the colonosc- So you would agree that usually when we have a pelvic mass, even if we don't feel kind of anything intraluminal, we'll go on to colonoscopy. So... This was already done. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, you okay, will always enough. want to go for a colonoscopy to make sure yeah. there's nothing intraluminal, which exactly. obviously he, he had this colonoscopy and uh, there was absolutely nothing on the mucosal uh, side of the okay. rectum. That's how the patient presented. And um, so at that point, uh, my what, what do you think that the patient has? What was your differential diagnosis for this type of tumor? Yeah, so from the physical exam, the way you described it, it looked like a submucosal tumor. Um, And looking at the differential diagnosis of these sub-epithelial slash submucosal tumors that arise from the GI tract, they could be both benign or malignant. And then when you look at the benign uh, etiologies, you have plenty such as leomyomas, schwannomas, desmoid tumors, 
And looking more at the malignant side of things, they could be leomyosarcomas, even malignant melanomas, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, and you have different tumors such as inflammatory myofibroblastic tumors, um, and obviously GIST, which as I we think, mentioned. Yeah, GIST would be kind of... Probably at the top of the yeah, list. Because all of what you named is quite rare. Very rare. You know, And there's another one that you didn't mention. Benign or malignant? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, just could be in between. What can be in the GI tract, in the small bowel, in the colon, other than adenocarcinoma? Oh, like a neuroendocrine tumor. Yeah, okay. it, it's often submucosal. Oh, when they're very small, it can be submucosal. Oh, and I would say it's higher in frequency than a rectal gist. Yeah, I think yeah. it's in the differential diagnosis. Yeah. All right, good to know. But, uh, of that side? No, of that size, no. Of that side, usually it would have perforated, yeah. you know? Or you would have like a small primary tumor with large lymph nodes. Yeah. That could be more likely to be a, yeah. a neuroendocrine tumor. Yeah. But there, they can be submucosal yes. tumors. Yes. Perfect. What's the next step in terms of how to get our firm diagnosis, Maya? Ideally, we'd want to get some kind of tissue diagnosis. Exactly. Now that we mentioned our yeah. differential diagnosis, obviously there are different. I'm thinking of different approaches to that, but considering that gists are usually soft and fragile tumors, where we, keeping in mind that it's probably a gist in this case, uh, we wouldn't necessarily want opt for a transabdominal uh, approach, especially there could be spillage. I think it would be very hard to do a transabdominal, abdominal or maybe transgluteal. transgluteal. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we need a tissue diagnosis to better tailor uh, treatment to understand yeah. what it is. Um, but I think the best option would probably be to proceed with an endorectal ultrasound guided okay. FNA. So what was over done? Over percutaneous uh, biopsy, Francois. Yeah. So definitely, in patient with rectal submucosal tumor. Whenever you think there's an invasion of the rectal wall, you'll favor an approach through the rectum so that if you don't get any tract or contamination through a gluteal approach. Sometimes you don't really have the choice, but most, most, of, most the of the time, time you're able to go on yeah. the luminal, but yeah. uh, you like to uh, go directly with an ultrasound. Through the natural yeah. orifice. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So that's actually what the patient had. He had an EUS guided biopsy. And then the pathology revealed this pendle cell uh, type gist, positive for CD1 uh, and 17. My. Tell the audience what yeah. is this now? Now that we have positive the diagnostic. for CD117. All right, so that's basically gists we're talking about, or gastrointestinal uh, tumors, stromal tumors. Originally, we thought that they originated from mesenchymal cells, but they actually arise from the interstitial cells of Cajal, basically the pacemaker cells of the GI tract. These cells are located within the muscular layer of the GI tract and coordinate autonomic movements. All gists are thought to have malignant potential with up to 30% progressing to malignancy. Rectal gists have an incidence of approximately 0.1% only of all rectal neoplasms and comprise approximately 3 to 5% of gists. Okay, where are most? Most uh, gists yeah, are, arise located. in the stomach. 
Okay, what percentage? From what my understanding, it's more than 50% of yeah, the time. Yeah, it's in fact uh, between it's 50 to 60% are often uh, in, the, uh, in the stomach. So the next is small in bowel. the small bowel. Okay, yeah. yeah, and in 25 years of practice, I've never seen <laughs> any colon juice. Excellent. So there you go. Very rare. Yeah. You have Even more rare so, than rectum, now that I remember my reading. Yeah. Okay. So you have... Stomach, stomach, small bowel, rectum, and then you have like a mental or extra GI yeah, gist, which, which is, is even, even more. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, gists are known to be slow-growing tumors and are often discovered incidentally during either endoscopy, imaging, or even in the OR during surgery. Um, presenting symptoms are variable and largely dependent on the location and the behavior of the tumor. On one hand, gists can erode the, through the mucosa into the lumen and present with either bleeding, or they could erode That's outwards. That's quite, quite rare, rare, in fact, yeah. Or they can erode outwards through the serosa and present with intra-abdominal bleeding. And but, that's even rarer. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, as, as uh, yeah. where I'm headed there, in general, especially for rectal gists, symptomatic patients may present with nonspecific symptoms, just like in this patient, such as pelvic fullness. And what's uh, kind of so very surprising is that you examine the patient and you feel this large mass and then you see the MRI and you see a large mass. And because of the nature of the tumor itself, which is a bit like jelly, mm -hmm. it very, very rarely occludes. So the patient is having like normal bowel movements But yet, you have like a 12 or 15 centimeter mass. And that always amazes me. But it's just the stools just push the jelly. And uh, and it doesn't necessarily cause like an obstructed uh, no. defecation syndrome no. or something. So it, it's quite amazing. You know? Contrary to like adenocarcinoma, yeah. which at that size would definitely be in be occlusion. Yeah, obstructive. Yeah. So that's quite particular. So whenever you have like a large mass and the patient has no obstruction, you think of something else than the standard cancer, mm -hmm. which is something like GIST. All right. So we mentioned on the pathology report that uh, the, the GIST was positive for CD117. Uh, can you tell me more a little bit about those markers? Yeah. So... Um In this case, it was a spindle cell type gist. So there are three different histologic subtypes for gists, including spindle at around 70%, epithelioid 20%, or a mixed at around 10%. And more than 95% of gists are usually positive for the marker CD117 on uh, staining. That is usually a marker for type 3 receptor tyrosine kinase or KIT. And the CKIT proto-oncogene usually encodes for KIT, And alterations in this gene are present in about 80% of gists, and they result from either deletions, insertions, or even point mutations in classically exons 11 and 9. Yeah, that's actually very interesting that different uh, mutations, which we will often have to look for, confers different, actually, prognostic factor. Most frequent mutation will be on exon 11, which is a better prognostic factor because they have a better response to uh, different uh, treatments, especially uh, imatinib, which we will discuss a little bit later. And on the other hand, the mutation on exon 9 
uh, will uh, confer some sort of resistance to the, the imatinib and uh, usually will actually give them higher dosage of that medication if they have that point mutation. Yeah. So it's quite important that whenever you get a pathology report talking about a CD117 and talking about KIT, uh, that uh, you make sure you get a further on. Exactly. Because Especially if they're non-responsive. Exactly. Exactly. So usually in your report, you'll want all of these details. Mm -hmm. The other um, markers that can be positive in GISTs uh, would be like PDGFR alpha. Which is the platelet-derived growth factor receptor A. Yep. And uh, which can be presented up to 20% of GIST, and sometimes it's something you will look, especially for the rare uh, types of GIST that are CD117 negative. Negative, exactly. Uh, or also there could be a staining for DOG1, which is discovered on GIST receptor 1, uh, which can also be positive and is a, a marker, a pathognomonic for GIST. Let's go back to, uh, a yeah. little bit to our case. So the patient, obviously, these these type of case needs to be discussed at tumor boards. I believe it's good to have the info and, and the, the, uh, the input from everyone. Yeah, because In they're unusual type of cancers. And uh, anyways, I think all rectal cancers should be presented at tumor yeah, boards. Definitely. So the discussion was, in fact, on neoadjuvant treatment or not. Yep. And I think this case was quite obvious, right? Yeah, definitely. So obviously we will discuss a little bit on that further, but in, in large rectal gist, the question always comes to these patients need some sort of downstaging with some preoperative uh, treatment, which we now have thyroid kinase uh, inhibitor called imatinib or commercially Gleevec. known as Gleevec. Yeah. Obviously, everybody knows that Gleevec. Yeah. Uh, and so in this case, we decided to uh, go for a treatment with Gleevec, especially because of the large uh, yeah. mass that the patient had. We also did a baseline PET scan in Why? this patient. Why did you do a PET The role of PET scan in GIST tumor is basically to evaluate the response to the early response to treatment when you are thinking about giving them Gleevec. In this case, you did the PET scan, and I think they should all be PET scanned when we're giving neoadjuvant treatment because, as you say, it's not only the decrease in size, because in fact, what we're going to be measuring is the uptake. The metabolic activity of exactly. the tumor. And uh, that is of great pertinence because we want to know if they response or not. Definitely. But in terms of size in the follow-up, we'll not usually just go on with the PET scan, right? No, no. Okay. And uh, actually on the PET scan, the mass was highly metabolic. What was the uptake? So the initial uptake was uh, higher than 17. So it's oh, that's quite high. Fairly fact. high. Okay. And uh, actually, there was also a small uh, lesion in the liver in this case, but it was 10 millimeter, and there was intermediate uptake. So the patient might have a liver met and isolated liver mets in this case. So we went with an MRI of the liver. Uh, and there was definitely a one centimeter liver mets, but it was not diagnostic on imaging. Oh. Anyways, it would not change the, uh, the initial therapy in this patient. So he underwent his treatment with Gleevec. So everybody was in accordance with giving Gleevec. Yeah. Usually we'll give it for at least 
six to 12 months. And uh, so when was your first imagery? Because we want to know if, if he's responding or not. Yeah. And so when was his first imagery? So after initiation of his Gleevec therapy, the patient was seen regularly in the clinic, make sure that he tolerated well the treatment because obviously this medication, even though it's usually fairly well tolerated, can have some uh, side effects, especially fluid retention, hypertension, uh, diarrhea, some nausea, fatigue, uh, and some uh, muscle cramp as well. But he tolerated fairly well and uh, he had his first PET scan three months later to assess for uh, tumor response and metabolic responses, uh, especially. And actually, uh, on the a control PET CT scan, he uh, had the tumor had shrunk a little bit from 12 to 10 centimeter, but mainly the SUV was down from 17 to 3.8. So there was clearly a good metabolic response to the Gleevec therapy, which is what we're looking for. Because exactly, but you would have liked a bit of a kind of a downsized response yeah. more. I mean, from what from tw uh, 12 to 10 to 10 yeah. it's yeah. not after three months yeah so okay. that's why we decided to obviously continue, continue the therapy at that time what about that uh, hepatic lesion the hepatic lesion was completely gone oh wow oh so confirming months. that so confirming there was, was a liver mate. yeah yeah but oh. still he responded and there was it was not seen on further imaging after. okay okay Hello listeners, Patrick Georgeoff here. I wanted to tell you about a very cool study being run by our friends at Brook Army Medical Center. They are working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed robotic general surgery procedures. If you are a general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic-assisted cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, check out the show notes for more information on how you could be compensated $500 per video submitted. That's right, $500 per video submitted. Check it out. Now, back to the show. So then after three months, you're satisfied with a certain amount of response. So when was your next imagery? So we, we continue like imaging every three months. And at that point, it was mainly followed with CT scans. Yeah. Uh, because we knew that there was a good metabolic response. And eventually, we will control with an MRI at the point where we are thinking about exactly operating the patient to make sure that obviously about to, to, to look at the pelvis and see what the structures around exactly. are, are if there's something involved so usually a large mass like that we would certainly consider if there is response to Gleevec up to one year yeah so did you scan at 12 months he started to plateau around 12 months around a year basically yeah. He had another scan which showed stable disease from the previous scan, and he had another MRI which showed that there was some there was more uh, necrosis inside of the tumor, but the tumor was still around nine centimeter. Okay. And actually, in this case, what was very interesting is that the tumor was kind of sinking through the levator and eye. It was bulging through oh. the levator and eye almost into the ischiorectal fossa, but it was not invading the sphincter. Okay. So it was kind of a kind of herniated. Yeah, it was kind of herniated. It was kind of going down. Wow! And okay. when you look at the and imaging, was it like that initially, or it it's was with, higher up? It was higher up. Yeah. So as it was decreasing its size, it kind was of kind of bulging. Sunk into the yeah, interesting. Sunk a little bit. But 
so after 12 months, I guess you said, okay, we've got a plateau and time for surgery. Yep. If we look at the response rate of Gleevec, how often do they respond? From what I read in some series, response goes up to 60%, but other series also reported up to 40%. However, size decrease is not always a reliable indicator of response in just just like in this case, where density could be one of the options looked at on CT scan, or as we mentioned, the metabolic response rate on PET scan. Lack of treatment response should prompt tumor mutation analysis, as we mentioned earlier, as some tumors could be resistant to imatinib secondary uh, to other mutations, especially on KIT exon 9, like we mentioned, which could benefit uh, from an increase dose of imatinib, followed by a re-evaluation. And there are also other treatments aside from imatinib that could be used, but I won't get into the details, but these are usually second or third line therapy. Exactly. So so what what would you do if you did not have response in this case? So I would would get like a better evaluation, mutational evaluation, try to see if there is no mutation on exon 9. But if that's not possible, I could always increase the dose of imatinib um, reassess, but we can also look for other mutations if there are any other. And if that doesn't work, obviously, then we can always switch, uh, as I mentioned, to other molecules and see. Yeah. So say at three months at the first PET scan, uh, if it would have shown the same uptake and the same size, we would have considered that it was non Non-responsive to imatinib. So therefore, we would have gone probably to a second line of treatment because the tumor was so large that you're Mm -hmm. really wanting to shrink. But we'll not get into all of these details. Basically, you always have to consider if you're not responsive, is is it safe to do like an operation right now or should you go to a second line therapy? Mm -hmm. So in this case, with the 12 centimeter mass, we would probably try to go for a second line therapy. Exactly. So in cases of smaller mass, which does not respond to Gleevec, probably maybe, maybe we we'll would just go to yeah, surgery discuss. and not yeah. give them, obviously, 12 months of if treatment. If we think if that we're same. able to get a good margin. Because uh, ultimately, the goal is to remove it. Yeah. And usually, if they're not responsive, the prognosis is probably not as good. And in this case, I mean, we know initially he had a liver med as well. Mm -hmm. In this case, after his 12 months of Gleevec, there was another discussion, especially because the patient actually had a liver med initially. But because it it responded very well to uh, the Gleevec therapy and actually was not visible anymore, and the large mass was deemed resectable, we decided to go to surgery. Yeah. So we uh, went with a robotic-assisted approach, and we basically did a, a very low anterior resection uh, where we were able to bring back the tumor inside the pelvis uh, through the levator and eye because it's not it's not invading the structures. That's what it you was, have to It was just herniated. It was just herniated and pushing. Yeah. So, and tell me... Uh, like that the mass was compressing also all of the mesentery. So when you yeah. you started dissecting posteriorly, all you could see was kind of the build, the, the bulge of the mass, right? Yeah, the mass was mainly uh, left lateral. Okay. So the posterior uh, plane was kind of still free all the way to the pelvic floor. And then when we reached the pelvic floor, 
then we started to really see that big bulge of a mass okay. on the left side. And we were able to dissect it from the levator inline muscles and then bring it back as we dissected, we were able to pull it back and with the help of somebody pushing actually through the ischioanal uh, fossa, we were able to completely dissect it and bring it back inside to leave only the right. anal rectal margin. And, which, and you were able to keep the, the capsule yeah, intact. Yeah, we Because were my aunt, that's a big prognostic factor yeah. in terms of these these tumors are quite fragile and either with laparoscopy or a robot, sometimes if you start pulling too much, you can actually kind of tear the capsule and then you have like a spillage. Yeah. So that's your main concern when you operate yeah. these patients, which you really want to avoid. And that's, is and that's why we want that shrinkage for the rectal gist, you know, prior to uh, going sense. in. So okay, we were so able to keep his sphincters and do a coloanal, uh, hands-on coloanal anastomosis with obviously a diverting ileostomy in this patient with a very low anastomosis, which was closed three months later. And uh, actually the patient uh, went pretty well after the, the surgery. So I think that, you know, for, for large gist, uh, certainly a uh, trans-abdominal approach is the way to go and uh, either laparoscopy or robotic. And I, I think that you have to be ready to convert. If ever you feel that, you know, the, the capsule is fragile or, or you think that you may tear because uh, it, it can have a big impact on prognostic factor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right. but nowadays laparoscopy, and I think robotic is probably the it's best because that. you're really able to see these levators and see kind of all around. And uh, now- clearly I think the message here is if you're operating these patients and you have like a doubt about the fragility of the tumor or- Open up. Open up. Absolutely. Don't try to- no, like no, do it. Make, make it around with the exactly. laparoscopy. It's not doing the patient. What you want right. is not a laparoscopic or robotic success. You want a tumor success Absolutely. surgery. So, and, and really, for those that are not familiar with these tumors, you really have to be aware of these situations. Now, in terms of, uh, are there indication of doing? Uh, kind of local excision. François, what's what's your view on that? Obviously, as we said, in this case, the tumor was way too large to even think about any other treatment than, right. than an LAR. Or but even, what's your cutoff, say, uh, height or size in terms of saying, oh, maybe I'll consider a transanal? So first of all, there is also like a category of gist, a very small rectal gist that are often found incidentally on, on colonoscopy and these really small just like less than one centimeter they can usually be removed endoscopically with endoscopic submucosal dissection for example to make sure that you remove the tumor. so how but would you is, diagnose such a one centimeter it would be on rectal yeah, it's because like, like on those, colonoscopy, you're not going to see much. So you're talking about a one yeah. centimeter. Yeah, you can see it's, it's just like a submucosal nodule that you can see. And this is like the other type of gist that you find. Wow. And these are usually I, diagnosed on pathology. Yeah. But, and uh, I think they're quite rare. In but fact. in terms of like larger gists, I think that if it's bigger than three, maybe five centimeter, if you push it, 
uh, you're better off with oncologic resection just to make sure that your yeah. margins are free. I, I'd say that the, the gray zone is between three and five. Yeah. And I would be way more comfortable with less than three. Yeah. Unless it's like four and it's posterior in a big kind of uh, meso envelope, mesentery envelope, and that you're able to. But I, I would be more comfortable with local excision three and less. Yeah. Really. That, that, that would be our standard yeah. uh, decision. And obviously, with uh, the new platforms, the, ta the TM, Absolutely. the TAMIS, it's way better than just like a, an endoanal excision for this patient because you can yeah. have like a, vis a good visualization and you can go like full thickness exactly. to remove the, the, the tumor. Uh, you need to go full thickness. Yeah, yeah, that. definitely yeah. for this patient. Yeah. And um, so I would say less than three centimeters it would be a good like cutoff point. Also, obviously to go with local incision would be below peritoneal reflection. So it's only for... I would mid say mid or, and or, or, lower, or lower rectal. rectal. Yeah. So anything that's higher, uh, you're better off with, obviously, a transabdominal excision. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, in gastric gist, you can just like... Oh, that's cut. so different. You can I just mean, like gastric gist, that's cut. easy wheezy. <laughs> you can just cut a little wedge. Yeah. So, but in, no, in it, rectal it's wall, such a, it's... Yeah. It's almost impossible to do just a local, even though it's not mandatory for oncologic purpose to do a, a, exactly a, 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 an oncologic resection. Usually on the rectum, you don't really have a choice, and you do you have to do like an LAR uh, for these patients right. because unless you would have like a very exophytic, anti-mesenteric, the, the rectal sigmoid junction where yeah. maybe you can think about putting a GIA. But I would say Yeah, but they're so not often there. No, they're no. on the rectum. They're never on the colon, <laughs> as we said earlier. Okay, so let's get back to our case. So, um, Dr. Dagbar, you talked about, you know, lymph node metastases. These are very rare. And so in a perspective of an oncologic resection, We do it not to get the lymph nodes. We do it to have security for the the tumor itself. Yeah. Okay. So, so you did the case, nice case. Uh, did you protect? I imagine you did a coloanal. Yeah. We did a we did a hands-on colon. We actually repaired the the levator defect. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. And then we did a coloanal anastomosis, a hands-on coloanal anastomosis, and okay. we protected the patient. And what did your path look like? So the pathology reported a nine centimeter mass with the zero mitosis and a KI67 index of less than 1%. Uh, there was negative resection margins. So uh, is that good? Man, zero mitosis? Yeah, that's actually one of the, the important prognostic factors that we should look at when looking at uh, non-gastric gists. Probably the most important. Probably the most important, indeed. So there's tumor size. Yeah. And most importantly, there is my, mitotic rate. There is actually a classification based on the Mietinen score. Um, for instance, a rectal gist of less than two centimeters with more than five mitoses has a predicted metastasis rate of up to 54%. And interestingly, rectal gists are four times more prone to rupture during surgery, exactly. probably because of the dissection in a very restricted pelvic area. 
as opposed to other gists um, from other anatomical sites, making rectal gists more prone to recurrence. Mm-hmm. So to summarize, I'd say tumor size is very important, but even more important is the mitotic rate. And then uh, looking at the Mietinen score, one can give um, an approximate estimation of a predicted metastasis rate. Exactly. You know. All right. So, yeah, definitely tumor size, there's usually like a cutoff at 2, 5, and 10. Exactly. Uh, and then the mitotic rate is less than 5 and more than 5 will make a huge difference. And uh, so in this case, uh, obviously because of the size of the lesions, uh, that even though the patient had no uh, zero mitosis, his recurrence rate was still high, so he was maintained on Gleevec therapy. And plus he had a liver lesion. And he had a liver yeah. mat, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and so he was maintained on Glivec for another two years after uh, the case, for a total of three years of treatment. So, Maya, what should be the follow-up? <laughs> yeah, according to the NCCN guidelines, um, patient with completely resected, incompletely resected, or a met- even metastatic gist should have a thorough history and physical exam, obviously, every three to six months. Uh, follow-up imaging with CT of the abdomen and pelvis also every three to six months for three to five years. And then annually... And less frequent surveillance could be acceptable for low risk or very small tumors, ideally defined as less than two centimeters. Um, PET CT can be considered to clarify any ambiguous CT results during follow up. So, in fact, the follow up, the imagery is more frequent than for, for rectal net, cancer, yeah, like adenocarcinoma. Yeah, rectal cancer. So, uh, how did this patient do? Actually, he was uh, very well for more than three years after his surgery. He had some degree of low anterior section syndrome, obviously with the coloanal, and he had uh, like a, an anastomotic stenosis that needed that required endoscopic dilation. But he was doing fairly well, and actually, the patient more than three years after his surgery, he recurred. So he uh, was kept on Gleevec for two years. Two years, and during yeah. that two-year period cancer-free cancer-free and then for another 15 months after he was still cancer-free with imaging and then eventually he developed a metastatic disease with liver liver and lung metastases as well as a pelvic recurrence oh a local recurrence as well yeah so he was started back on Gleevec and uh, uh, responded so he's now still on Gleevec so obviously those type of recurrence are frequent in rectal gists, but still the patient is now almost four years from his initial diagnosis and he's still alive. Okay, so this was quite an interesting and unusual case. And I think that for the audience, you do have to remember that uh, when you have such kind of submucosal lesion in the rectal uh, area, the first thing to think about is really uh, GIST. And uh, I hope that you've understood kind of all the particularities associated with such a tumor. And so uh, if we kind of summarize, GIST are submucosal. They're very rare rectal cancer, but we do have to think about their uh, they're challenging tumors because of all the discussions we've had in terms of should we give neoadjuvant treatment? 
And um, in terms of if they're not responding, what should we do? Should we go to a second line or should we go straight to surgeries? And that's depending on size and location. And uh, generally speaking, if we're to be curative, surgery has to come along at one point. And I would say from a standard point of view, if it's three to five centimeters. It's debatable. <laughs> that's it. I know. But I think for sure, five centimeters and more, it's a trans-abdominal surgery. If it's less than three, you can consider. And three to five is the gray zone. And I think that biopsy, it's important to think about the way that you're going to be doing your biopsy because you don't want spillage. And uh, so I think that the best way uh, in 2023 to biopsy is with endorectal ultrasound because you're really going in where the tumor is. Is it that? Exactly. So hope you've enjoyed our rectal gist case and uh, hope that you'll recall the, the main pointers. And so from the Montreal group, we say uh, à la prochaine! Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.